Pastor Ryan, you know, if you have toddlers this morning, then you probably had a storm getting ready for church this morning. It may not seem much to some of us who are empty nesters or for some of us whose kids have finally made it beyond the toddler stage, but if you will sort of dust the cobwebs off the back of your mind, you will remember what it was like trying to get to church early in the morning on time, everyone dressed, everyone fed, everyone in their place when they get to church. And so because today is somewhat of an opportunity for us to invite the children in here, I have something for those who are still dealing with toddlers. And maybe your children are still somewhat like this, but if we are honest as I read this, we as adults sometimes have to admit that we're kind of like toddlers. I said sometimes we're like toddlers. Come on. We've learned that uh, Wendy and Janelle, who are in our children's ministry, are really no different than sometimes Brother Dorian, who's in the senior adult ministry. You follow what I'm saying? I don't know what it is that uh, we grow out of toddler age and all that, and then we go right back into toddlership as we get older. I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not quite there yet, but I'm on my way. But anyway, these are the toddler rules of engagement. The toddler rules of engagement, all right? There's 10 of them. Number one, if I want it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it is mine. Number three, if I can take it away from you, it is mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours at any time. Number six, if we are building something together, all of the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it just looks like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I think it's mine, it is mine. Number nine, If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. And last but not least, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) We've all been through the toddler stage. And we hopefully have grown out of the toddler stage. But isn't it interesting how sometimes we as adults act much like toddlers? Because sharing is hard to do. Sharing is hard to do. And it's interesting how self has a tendency to rise up within us, no matter how well-intended we are, and ceases to grab what we think belongs to us at any expense. We all have trouble with that because we live in a culture, we live in a society that is a consumer culture. And because we live in a consumer culture, it, it, it sort of feeds that selfish, self-centered, egotistical part of us that says that we must possess everything that's within our grasp at all costs. 
And we will go to extreme lengths to desire those things that the world convinces us that we must possess. And the desire that wells up within us will seek at any cost to achieve and accomplish that level of success, that level of possession that the world has convinced us we must possess. And what that leads us to, if we're not careful, is a continual road of compromise that eventually yields to a costly circumstance that eventually plays out in our lives. And that which we seek to possess and all the effort that we put forward into possess it, eventually at the end of that rope or the end of that road, it causes us to lose everything that we have spent so much effort in trying to attain. Lot discovered that. He had a a, a passion, he had a desire to possess everything that the world offered. Now, Lot, according to, to, to the apostle Peter, was a righteous man. And yet, in his righteousness, we are going to discover today that he, in the desire to possess and to attain everything that the world had to offer, While he may not have compromised his own righteousness, he eventually loses his wife, he loses his daughters, and he loses all that he sought to possess because of this insatiable appetite to achieve, to attain, to possess more. He was never satisfied with what he had. Now, there's nothing wrong with being unsatisfied, But we need to be really careful with the desire to possess. And so we're going to learn from Lot today, I think from Genesis chapter 13, some interesting principles. And the downward spiral that took place in Lot's life with this insatiable appetite to never be content with what he had, to always possess more. Now, some some of you are thinking, well, you know, I don't have a lot, so therefore this this message isn't for me. I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of things or a lot of possessions. I'm just sort of an average Joe or a a mediocre Mary or whatever you want to say. And, you know, this is really for the other people. But the reality is, if you really consider what we have in, in relationship to what other people, other cultures, other civilizations in the world have, we as Americans are incredibly wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. Uh, It doesn't take a rocket scientist to live in a foreign country for very long like I lived in Brazil for a number of years, 10, almost 11 years, to see poverty at its worst. And then come to the States and we say that we know poverty in the U.S., but The reality is that poverty in the U.S. is sometimes rich and wealth in another country. And so we've grown accustomed to sort of redefining what it is to possess things, haven't we? And our insatiable appetite to possess a better car, a larger house, better clothing, in this culture of consumerism can eventually drive us to this continual slow process of compromise that will eventually be costly in the end result. So what you desire is incredibly important. That's why the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. What is the desire of your heart today? Abram desired the right thing. Lot desired the wrong thing. And even though Simon Peter said he was a righteous man, his heart was far from God. 
It's kind of like what I think about when he talked about the early church and uh, the church in, uh, in Revelation where he said he, he listed all of these things that they had accomplished and all these things they had done, and yet they had lost their first, what did they lose? Love. They had lost their first love. Abram came back, as we studied last week, into a right relationship with God Restored his relationship with the father, but Lot never did. Let's take a look at Lot's life in Genesis chapter 13, beginning with the downward spiral that happened when, first of all, he shadowed, he shadowed carelessly. He shadowed carelessly. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to go to the passage in chapter 12, verse 5. We're going to back up for just a minute, and we see in chapter 12, verse 5, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, in all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. If you come to our Bible study on Wednesday night, you would have known that God called Abram while he was in Mesopotamia before he reached Haran. And while he was in Mesopotamia, God came to him and God called him to leave his kinsmen, to leave his country, and to go to a place that God would show him. For some unknown reason, we don't know the reason for what happens next, but Terah, who is Abram's father, takes Abram and Lot, his grandson, because Lot's father has died, and now his grandfather is his patriarch, his mentor, his leader, his spiritual mentor, and they then on the way to Canaan settle in Haran. Yeah, they settle in Haran. When God had called Abram to Canaan, they settle in Haran. And we talked about how sometimes we settle far less than what God has promised by settling in Haran rather than moving on into the promised land. And while they were there, they gather more riches and they accumulate more people, more clansmen, more family, and Terah dies. And we see in chapter 12, verse 5 now, Abram finally following the command of the Lord and the call of the Lord to go to Canaan. Now notice what it says in the verse, verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, but he also took Lot. What does it mean to take Lot? His grandfather, Terah, was dead. So therefore he had no patriarch, he had no spiritual leader, he had no mentor. And now Abram is assuming the role of the patriarch of the family. Now Lot is under Abram's leadership, and Abram is now the spiritual leader of the family. And as the spiritual leader of the family, he takes Lot and their families, and they go to Canaan. We know the story from a couple of weeks ago where because of a famine in the land, uh, he decides to go to Egypt. He doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't put his trust in God, as Brother Gail Pat preached the other day. A, a fine message, by the way, since I kind of dogged it a little bit on Wednesday night. And, uh, and so they go down to Egypt, and while there, now Lot is watching Abram. He's under his leadership. He is being mentored. He is, he is, Abram is the patriarch of Lot. In other words, Lot is in the school of discipleship. Lot is going to class. Lot is following Abram, and Abram is leading Lot and his family, and he leads them down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, if you remember, he lies to Pharaoh because he has a good-looking wife. Now, I know everyone, every husband in here believes their wife is good-looking enough to lie about, right? 
Amen, guys? Okay. Anybody not married to a good-looking wife today? If you believe your wife's good-looking, say amen. What? You better say that a little louder, guys. Okay? And his wife was so good-looking that he was afraid that Pharaoh would be attracted to his wife, kill him, and steal his wife. So he lies and says that she's his sister, and so eventually he takes her into the household, and because of a plague... Pharaoh realizes, I don't know how a pagan king realizes this, but this is actually Abram's wife, not his sister, and he takes her back. Now, he has, he has been somewhat compensated because of, you know, Pharaoh taking his sister, and he becomes extremely even more wealthy than he was before, and then he is expelled from Egypt, and we learn in chapter 12 they are now on their way back to Canaan, kicked out of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever read anyone's autobiography to learn what made them successful in life? Well, any true autobiography will not only share their successes, but their failures, because we need to sometimes learn from failures. Now, many of you have started school last week, right? Everybody excited about that? School's finally started. Now, I don't know about how you are as parents, but whenever our kids came home from school, I would always ask them, what'd you learn today? You know, I'm trying to create conversation. What did you learn today? And what is the standard answer, parents? Nothing. And I, okay, so you spent eight hours in school all day long and you learn nothing. That's right, dad, learn nothing. That didn't help the conversation. So then you'd have to kind of pride a little bit more. What is Lot learning from Abram's mistakes? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, it's one thing to learn from your own mistakes, but you also need to pay attention to others' mistakes. I don't know about you, but when my brother stuck his hand in the fire, I wasn't going to stick my hand in fire because I watched what it did to him. Lot should have been smart enough that when he came to this crossroad in life, that he recognized and realized that the choice he was about to make was as dangerous and as disastrous as the choice Abram made. And so he shadowed he was mentored by Abram but he did it carelessly he did it inattentively it's almost as if he didn't want to be in school he wasn't taking notes and he wasn't learning from Abram's mistakes I encourage you today if you want to avoid some disastrous mistakes in your life learn from others mistakes learn from them so you know what I see what had happened. I'm not going to do that because that's not wise. That's careless. And so the, the, the downward spiral, I think, began with Lot in that he did not learn from Abram's mistakes. Number two, he also sought selfishly. Lot's downward spiral happened when he sought selfishly. He was incredibly self-centered. Lot was never satisfied with what he possessed even though he was a wealthy man by the standards of the world in which he lived. He was never satisfied, and he had this insatiable appetite for more. Notice what it says in verse 5, chapter 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's 
livestock. What happens? They get to Canaan, they begin to settle, and all of a sudden we see that as they begin to settle, and, and uh, you know, they get to Canaan, they sacrifice, Lot calls upon the name of the Lord, they begin to engage in life, and we learn that all of a sudden that the land cannot support both men and their herds and their flocks. And so their possessions become a problem. The problem is that there's not enough green grass to support their flocks and their, their herds. And so as a result of this problem, there's a power struggle between the herdsmen of, of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. Lot is jockeying for position upon what rightfully belongs to Abram. Follow this. Lot is trying to push out Abram what does not rightfully belong to him. This land does not belong to Lot. Lot is a guest of Abram. Lot is there by permission. Lot is there by request. Lot is there because Abram has taken him under his wing and has become his spiritual leader. And, and because of that, he was not acting as a good guest should act. Let's say you invited me over to your house, and while I was there waiting on dinner to be served, I started helping myself to other things in your refrigerator. What if I, you know, found some cash in your house and just put it in my pocket and said, thank you very much, and pretended to take it as mine. Somebody said, what cash? Good luck in finding something. Lot is a guest. God had promised this to Abram. It was God's to give to Abram, and he promised it to Abram. He didn't promise it to Lot, and Lot was a guest there because Abram included him in the invitation and he's trying to squeeze Abram out of what rightfully belongs to Abram. He selfishly sought to provide for himself at the expense of the one who had been so generous to him already. Wow. You want to know about selfishness? Just serve in the nursery for a little bit and you'll see children who are completely driven by self-centeredness. Toddlers believe that the sun rises and the sun sets for them. In that week that we spent in Florida with the 16 of us in one house, it wasn't always big enough, but it was just big enough. But I saw three out of the 16 who were toddlers sometimes dominate the whole household because of their self-centeredness they want what they want when they want it at the moment they want it and until they get it they're going to let everybody know about it and as beautiful and as perfect as they are because they're my grandchildren pastor gail they act a lot like their grandmother patty <laughs> anybody believe that lot let self take center stage in his life and he began to push in a place where he didn't have permission from God to push and sought selfishly to grab what belonged to Abram I've seen that happen in marriages and families and I've seen it happen in churches so the downward spiral will begin when he shadowed carelessly. Secondly, he sought selfishly. Thirdly, he saw worldly. Notice he saw worldly. In verse 10, we're going to skip down to verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. 
in the direction of Zor. He saw worldly. He saw through carnal lenses. He saw with a fleshly eye. It's almost as if, and and it's almost as descriptive as Eve when she was in the Garden of Eden being tempted by Satan. She saw, and he saw. He lifted up and he saw the Jordan Valley. That, That whole concept, he lifted his head and he saw. His desire welled up within him. A passion, a desire welled up to attain what he saw. And that desire led to a decision. It led to a discovery. And in that discovery, he saw something that that welled up in his heart. And he said, I have to have that. That desire discovered that, that what was there was this beautiful land, unlike any land that he had ever seen. It was well watered, which is really important back in those days. It was like the Garden of Eden, which he had never seen, but he had heard about. It was like the land of Egypt that he had seen. And because it was so well desired in that discovery, he headed in that direction toward the direction of Zor. He not one time sought direction from God. Not one time did he ask God, what do, you, what do you have for me? What do you desire for me? Where would you want me to live? You know, I've known families that have used carnal eyes to try to find the perfect spot to live and to raise their children. And we, we see with our eyes what we think is the perfect culture and the perfect community and the perfect church and the perfect this. And, and we, we see, you know, this is, this is a nice neighborhood. Those are nice houses. This is a great school system. And we see with worldly eyes and with a carnal attitude and we make decisions on where we're going to plant our family based upon the wrong things. We never seek God in the direction that he wants to place our lives. One thing I admire about Kip is that Kip has been called to live in this community. And he bought a house just across the street from the church. Now, that's not God's will for all of us. But what would possess a man to bring his family into this community? For most of us, would not live this close to the church. We may live close to the church, but not this close to the church. And it's kind of amazing to me how the community changes from block to block almost. Isn't it? And yet God called him here. Lot was not concerned about where God was going to call him. And he judged based upon worldly things and material things and possessions that he thought that these things will not only help my wife, great shopping, great great grocery stores, great schools for my kids, a great place for me to engage in business. I could get not only... You know, my wares out and sell my stuff and enter the commerce, but I can gain more wealth if I move over here. And that's what he decided to do. And he chose because he saw carnally, he saw fleshly, he saw worldly. He evaluated by a standard other than the standard of God. Well, Lot's downward spiral happened not only when he shadowed carelessly, sought selfishly, saw worldly, but Fourthly, he separated himself spiritually from Abram. Abram was Lot's spiritual leader. I've already mentioned that. We learn that when Abram came back from Egypt and he settled in Canaan with Lot and his family, it was Abram who built an altar. You'll not find one time anywhere in the book of Genesis, anywhere where Lot actually built an altar to worship God. 
You'll never find one time where Lot actually called upon the name of the Lord. You will find, Simon Peter say, in his second letter, I believe, where Lot was considered a righteous man. So he believed in God, and he followed the Lord. But yet you never find anywhere he, he built an altar or he called upon the name of the Lord. And so Abram was his spiritual leader. Abram was his mentor. Abram was the one who was pouring into him to help him grow in his understanding and his fellowship with the Lord. Now notice in verse 11, so Lot chose for himself. This is, this is interesting. Watch in verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east Thus they, notice, they separated from each other. They separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. You'll never find after this any time in which Abram and Lot ever spend any more time together. They're never together, except for the fact when we're going to see in a minute where Lot is captured by an invading army and Abram goes and saves him. That's pretty much the only time we ever see them together after this. They separate. He comes and he removes himself from the authority, from the leadership, and from, and from the influence of his spiritual leader. He chose for himself, it says. I think that's huge. Don't, don't overlook it. He chose not for God. He chose for himself. Not really even for his family. He chose what's best for himself which would financially help him in that decision. He claimed, how much did he claim? All of Jordan. You know how much land that is? Thousands of acres. There's no way in the world that he could possibly need so much. But he claimed all of Jordan. He told Abram, I want all of Jordan. I don't need it all, but I want it all. I want it all. And he claimed all. And he committed then to separating himself, to bringing himself out from underneath the authority, the watch care, and the fellowship of Abram. Next Sunday, we're going to encourage you. Over a thousand families have become a part of this church, but they have left the fellowship of the church. I ask you, why would thousand, a thousand plus Families, not people, but we're talking families who are members of this church, not be a part of the fellowship and the community of faith of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Why would they separate themselves? I'll tell you why. Because they're not living and they're not walking in the spirit of Christ. They're not living righteous lives. They're not sojourning after the lordship of Jesus. They're not following God. Because, you see, if they come to church, they're afraid they're going to fall under someone's authority. Someone may hold them accountable for the lives that they're living. And today in church, we don't hold anybody accountable for anything, now do we? Because how am I going to throw stones at you when I live in a glass house, blah, blah, blah. And yet the church says that we must hold each other accountable. If they come to church, they might feel convicted of something. And... God forbid I feel convicted about something and change my life. Why, they might expect me to serve if I come. They might want me to give if I come. And so as a result of that, I just disconnect. I separate myself under the authority, under the fellowship of the community and the watch care of a church. And now I'm out here on my own. And now Lot, on his own, is about to make even greater of a disaster of his life than had he stayed underneath Abram. 
And there was a separation spiritually, not only from Abram, but from God. Because when you get out of the, the, the authority of your spiritual leadership and your spiritual community, you're out on your own and you're living on your own. And the end result is not going to be good. So Lot's downward spiral continued as he separated spiritually from Abram and under the watch care and the mentorship of Abram. But fifthly, when he settled unwisely. He separates, now he settles unwisely. Notice verse 13. Well, let me go back to 14. Just, it's not on the screen, but 14 says that while Lot settled among the cities in the valley as far as Sodom, he moved as far away as he possibly could from Abram, and he settled in Sodom, near Sodom. He settles near, that's an unwise choice. Well, how do you know that? Look at verse 13. God helps us understand why this, why this choice was not a good choice. Notice what it says in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The men. They were, they were, they were mortal men. Carnal men. They were men. And they were morally wicked who were masterful at committing great sin, and they were moving away, not toward God. They were not spiritual people. They were not godly people. They were not God followers. They were men of wickedness. Notice Jude 1.7, the description of these people. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These were not good people to associate with. Now, it strikes me as interesting that a lot more than likely had lived with Abram in Canaan for quite some time. And Abram had entered into an agreement with some other clansmen in the area, and they were sort of cooperating, and they were watching each other's back, so to speak, against invaders. And so Lot more than likely understood that these Sodomites, these, these people were not godly people. They were not people of the faith. He knew when he moved in that direction that he was moving in to hostile territory, to wickedness, to people who were committing great sin, people who were defying the very laws of God. And yet he willingly, knowingly moved into that intentionally so that he could profit financially. Isn't that crazy? I want you to notice the progression. This is an unwise decision on his part because we see in verse 6 that he surrendered now gradually. Notice the progression. He settled unwisely. Now he surrenders gradually. His, his commitment to being separate or set apart. You know, he says, kind of, he says, you know, I'll move in that direction, but I, I won't move into the city. I'll move into the burbs, okay? I'll, I'll live out in the country out there in Rose Hill. Brother Gail. And I won't move into the city where all the wickedness is going to take place. So I'm going to move in that direction, but I'm going to separate myself. But notice now, number six, he gradually begins to surrender his commitment to God. And notice what it says in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their 
provisions and went their way. But notice verse 12, they also took Lot, notice verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was, what was he doing? What was he doing? He was dwelling in Sodom. He was dwelling in Sodom. He moved towards Sodom, but settled outside of Sodom. He was outside, but now he has moved on the inside of Sodom. He's on the inside. How did that happen, you ask? Well, he moves out in the burbs, doesn't move into the city, feels a little bit safe, begins to do some commerce, some trade, some exchange. Maybe the bank is in the city. He goes to the city on a regular basis. He's selling his product, his produce. He's out there doing commerce, and he's going in in the city. On, and and as I say, you know what? This is ridiculous. I don't need to be traveling. I can, I can let my herds and my flocks out here, and I can move into the city under the protection of the city, and I can just save myself some time. And so I'm just going to move into Sodom, and I'm going to be able to just sort of, you know, protect my family inside of the city of Sodom. And he moves into the city of Sodom. The gradual, slippery slope of continual compromise. And notice now what happens in number seven. He sat diplomatically. He sat diplomatically. I know that word sat is an unusual word for you, but it's right out of Scripture. Notice what happens in verse 1, chapter 19. We're going to go all the way to chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Did you get that? He was dwelling in Sodom, what the Bible says, but now where is he sitting? He's sitting the gate of Sodom. Why is that that important? Because you see, it was at the gate where the political leaders sat. It was at the gate where the chamber of commerce sat. And Sodom was a place where all the business was conducted at the entrance, at the gate. And Lot now has moved from not only being a resident of Sodom. But now as a resident of Sodom, he has now become politically influential. He's become a leader in the chamber of commerce. He is involved and in the promoting and the protecting of the lifestyle that is a reproach to God. Because there's no way in the world that he can engage in business with these people and not condone their activity. Maybe he didn't speak against it, but he sure didn't stand against it, and he didn't seek to change it. You don't find one convert from Lot's interaction with Sodom. And here we see that he, he sees carnally, he selects to live close to Sodom, he sets out in a direction in which he's going towards Sodom. He settles near Sodom. He seeks the safety of Sodom because there are bad people around them who may come and steal what he has. And so he, he seeks safety into the city of Sodom, believing that he's safe. But invaders come and they take all the possessions of those who live in Sodom, plus Lot and his possessions. And he now is a, a captive in a, you know, from these invading forces. And we're going to study it later where, where the, now Abram is going to have to go and liberate Lot because you know, Lot's now a captive. He's a prisoner. He's enchained and he's a slave. And Lot takes his army and releases him and saves him. 
But here we see that now he's sitting in a place of leadership. What's the end result of Lot's life? In a quick nutshell, we're going to learn that, that God wants to destroy Sodom. And Abram prays for Sodom. And he says, if you'll just find some righteous people, will you destroy Sodom? And the angels are there to find some righteous people. And Lot is the only one, him and his family are the only ones who were saved before the destruction of Sodom. But as they are leaving Sodom, you know the story, his wife turns because she misses it, she longs for it, her desire is for the world that she left rather than following God, and she turns into salt. Stone. And later we learn that his daughters become just as wicked as the people that influence their lives when they're growing up in that community of wickedness and do vile things which result in catastrophic outcomes. But Lot, get this, loses all his possessions. The very thing he sold his soul for, the very thing he desired the most, and the reason he sought to live where he was going to live was for possessions. And in the end, he loses it all. Would it, would it be disastrous for you, let's say, if you had spent your whole life for something that in the end you lost anyway? All of that effort and all of that energy and all that pursuit and all that drive and all that activity, and in the end you attain it for just a moment to see it slip out of your fingers and to be destroyed by God himself. And you look in the mirror and go, what a waste of my life. To pursue possessions, to pursue the material, to pursue other worldly things rather than to have a pursuit for the eternal things and a relationship with God. So as we close, here's two questions. Question number one, have you made a commitment to follow Christ? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. There's a desire welling up in you for eternal things, for spiritual things, for Christ. That's not something that you can fabricate. That's not something that you can desire in and of yourself. God, like in Abram's life, is calling you to make a commitment to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Will you answer that desire that God has created in your heart for things that are spiritual, things that are eternal, especially a relationship with the Father through Christ the Son? You may live a righteous life and never know Christ, never follow God. Second question. If you've made a commitment to follow Christ, has there been compromise to your commitment in following Christ? Are there desires in your life that are greater than your desire for Christ? And those desires are driving you to compromise in little ways? 
You know, compromise doesn't normally happen all at once. If you saw a cannonball coming your way, you would see it and you would duck, right? Well, what if a BB was coming at you? Would you see that quite as easily and quite as quickly? That's how compromise happens. One BB at a time making an impact. One decision at a time. Little by little. You start here. And then you start then to compromise in your commitment. And little by little, and before you know it, you're way over here, and you're so far away from where you intended to be. It is possible, I believe, for spiritual people to live carnally. It is possible for Christians to live fleshly. It is possible for us to so compromise our desire to follow Christ that we're not following him at all. And we surrender the authority and the commitment and the relationship that we have with Christ with things that are not eternal, with things that are temporary, with things that are human, with things that are fleshly, with things that are spiritual, that are not spiritual. So I ask you, has there been compromise? Chances are, if we're all honest, there's been a compromise here or there at some point point, sometime in our lives. Maybe it's now. And look what it's got you. And isn't it time for us to renew our commitment to Christ? To lay down whatever it is that we need to lay down on the altar. And say, Lord, renew your love for me as I renew my love for you. I want to get right with you. You know what he said to the church that lost their first love? Remember from whence you came. Repent of your sin return to me and that's a great 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 process that we could use today to get back to the commitment that we once rendered to Jesus when we put our faith and trust in him let's pray